if you're just looking at the security of the cash flows coming back to you, and you're not looking at what the market is telling you in terms of the risk level to those cash flows, then you may be missing some really important signals. And a lot of times management is incentivized to add assets at any cost. And that's really where they get a management fee based on assets instead of incentives on returns. There's no free high yield out there. Welcome to Behind the Idea, where we break down investment stories from the Seeking Alpha ecosystem to find out what makes successful analysis work. I'm Daniel Schwartzman. And I'm Mike Taylor. Today we're looking at landmark infrastructure, ticker symbol LMRK, and whether it is due for a fall. First, some background and disclosure. Seeking Alpha is a website where investors around the world share their investment ideas and analysis. Neither Mike nor I have any positions in any company discussed, and nothing on here should be taken as investment advice. If you like what we're doing, please leave us a review and subscribe to Behind the Idea on Stitcher, SoundCloud, or iTunes and Apple Podcasts. Today's topic, new author Alacran Investments argues that Landmark Infrastructure's model is bad and that the shares should be sold, shorted, or avoided. The company is a big yielder which attracts a lot of attention. What's the deal with high yields and how do they become dangerous to investors? Or is Alacran overstepping by making a short call here? Today's theme, high yield can mean high risk. So how do investors avoid getting burned? Before we start, Mike, what is landmark infrastructure? Landmark infrastructure is kind of the type of high yielding company that a lot of income-focused investors will look at. There are many on Seeking Alpha and elsewhere who are just looking for a high yield, a form of income. Retirees like consistent and high yield income to sort of fund their lifestyles as, you know, they're not working anymore, so they want some passive investment income. Landmark sort of fits that bill from an investor perspective. Mm -hmm. In terms of the business model itself, it's sort of a fund that owns real estate that is in a sort of wide variety of areas. They invest in some sort of telecom infrastructure plays like cell towers or mobile phone network operators, or they do business with those type of companies. They also have some properties related to outdoor advertising and also some alternative energy uh, investments. So there's sort of this big basket of of infrastructure related or and advertising related. There's sort of a strange fruit salad of different types of real estate or real estate leasing operations all mixed together in this one company. The company is also a master limited partnership structure, which I'll be honest, I'm not super well versed on the details of that, but it's basically a tax structure that's a little bit more favorable in terms of income distribution to shareholders. The tax treatment is a little better. But that's the basic rundown. This is a company that owns some real estate, has lease income from other real estate, and is in a sort of wide variety of different areas and all the, not all the cash, but 
the idea behind the partnership is that a lot of the cash will be returned to investors at a more favorable tax rate. That's the basic rundown. Okay. And it's maybe worth the whole MLP, REIT, and triple net lease might be worth bringing up because they, they're relevant here to some degree. Uh, MLP, like you said, Master Limited Partnership, I think the story there is there's some tax advantages to the company and shareholders. You're required to fire, file a K-1 if you own an MLP in your investment accounts, including, I think, in your IRA. And so that's a little bit more work and that can be a bit of a pain, which dissuades a lot of people from owning MLPs. And is the K-1, I don't know the answer, that's why I'm asking. Is it a tax form or... Is that what? Yeah, it's a yeah, it's a instead of a 1099, it's a separate tax form. I think the idea is that you're buying units in the MLP in the partnership, and so you're essentially receiving income as if you were an, you know, an old owner of the business. But it seems a little bit more the way they term that is differently than if you're owning shares in a corporation. So I think that's the distinction. Because you're a limited partner in the limited partnership, <laughs> something like that, which is different from being a common shareholder in a corporation. And we won't get into the weeds on why, because I don't think either of us could give her a great answer in a limited time. But yeah, okay. And then a REIT is a real estate investment trust that's basically a pool of funds that invest in real estate specifically. It also has a specific tax structure to it. And triple net lease, Daniel, you want to try and field the triple net lease? Yeah, that's the, I think these are considered the, the premium REITs are the ones who have triple net lease. The short end of it is basically that the tenant has to pay for everything. So they have to pay for improvements. They have to pay for real estate taxes. They have to pay for insurance. And so... It's a really attractive lease from the landlord's perspective because they're not, they don't have to invest as much in the maintenance of the real estate, of the property of whatever sort. And so that's really the, the gold standard. I believe Landmark essentially has a model where they have most of their business is in triple net leases. I don't know if they break it out that way. They're not a REIT yet. And there's some talk in the comment stream that they will reincorporate that way, but they're not yet. They also have rent escalators. So you sort of have locked in price increases, which in theory is advantageous. And so that's sort of the model. That's what they're aspiring to. Triple net releases tend to be valued highly by many investors. Realty income is probably the best known one, but there are a few other REITs that are similar, similar approach to the market. And so that's, that's kind of the story there. Okay. So in hearing all this stuff, we have this company that owns a lot of assets, generates income related to the assets, the corporate structure of an MLP and these other corporate structures all sort of co-conspire together and the triple net lease to create a lot of income, to create an income stream for investors. And I mm-hmm. think what's interesting about this corner of the market is that there is a the in on seeking alpha we have the dividend and income community and the retirement community and there's an entire community around REITs 
and master limited partnerships and triple net leases, pursuing a strategy of generating cash income from investments. And this group of people is attracted to this space, interested in these types of tax structures. And in a way, I think some of these companies are aimed specifically at meeting these shareholder needs of cash flows, which is an interesting thing to consider when you have a lot of operating companies that have maybe a more complex capital allocations decision process where, do I reinvest in a growing operating business or not? REITs and MLPs could potentially just sort of satisfy themselves with the task of generating income for shareholders. I think that's where where some of them can go wrong, and maybe that's where we get into the thesis of this article, which is basically, if we take the approach that Landmark Infrastructure Partners is an income or economic value generating vehicle for shareholders, if we just think of it as, let's forget the mobile phone network operators, let's forget about the advertising and the alternative energy and just think of landmark infrastructure partners as a box and you put money into the box and out comes money again. The thesis here is that if you look inside the box, you'll see that there's a lot of evidence supporting the idea that the money you get out of the box is not worth the risk you're taking, basically. So Alacran Investments is basically saying, here's the cost of capital. Here's what investors should expect to get in return for their investment in Landmark. And the, re- the company is buying on behalf of shareholders a bunch of properties where they can't expect to return that cost of capital to shareholders. So the return on the investments that the company is making on behalf of shareholders not sufficiently high to justify the share price. So the share price should go down to correct for that. On top of that, you have the cash flow needs of investors. If they're attracted to this company because they're retirees and they're looking for passive income and they're looking for a high yield, they need to be careful because the cash flows that the business is generating, all those different alternative energy investments, billboard leases, whatever else this company is actually doing, aren't generating the cash required to pay out the dividend. So a dividend cut may be coming. That's the basic thesis. From two different perspectives, a return on investment perspective and on a yield perspective, Alacran's basic thesis is this company isn't generating enough value in the real world to pay out what's going on inside this little box isn't sustainable. It's not going to last. The cash flows that are coming out of the business are not going to be sufficient for investors. And it's worth pointing out maybe that the stock has fallen around 15% since this report came out. So there may have been something to the story. For sure. And also, first-time author getting 150 comments on the article and over 70 followers, also a sign of resonance. And I think, so what I wanted to start with from there 
because I think you set it up nicely with the idea of the box is here's how I understand this model to work. It's, it's not so dissimilar to a bank to some degree. I was talking with other colleagues yesterday about BDCs and BDCs are also a high yielding play of a similar concept. And it's essentially this idea of you or I can't do, we don't have all that much individual expertise with our money. We can't go find renters. We can't go find uh, borrowers, whatever else. We invest in a fund like this where they can do that for us, right? They, they own real estate that they can rent out on scale or they own, or they, they make loans to startup businesses or smaller businesses in the BDC case, or and MLPs also get in the oil and gas space as well. And so that's the idea is, I think, as follows, is that once you pool that money, they can borrow cheaper than what they're renting at, right? That's It's all about the spread that you can get. You borrow money. In this case, you get money from shareholders at a low price of debt or at hopefully a low cost of capital. You then either rent out assets or acquire assets and then rent them out. In Landmark's case, hopefully for a higher, you know, you'll be getting a return over time and a steady return at that because it's 86 to 93%. I forget the exact number in the article, but has an escalator attached. So the rents are going to go up over time. In theory, it's inflation protected. And additionally, this is where the triple net lease aspect comes in, is you don't have a lot of CapEx. So you don't really need to to spend a lot maintaining the business. So once you get the assets, they kind of just earn a return for you steadily over time. And so that's the that's the model. That's how it's supposed to work. I have some ideas for where the model fails that I think match up to Alacram. But before I do, just from your perspective, is there, before we even go into it, does, do things stand out or are there obvious issues or concerns with a model that's based on that premise? Well, I think one is kind of trusting management. So you started out with the mm-hmm. premise that these investment pools, this is true of any investment, I think, but when you're talking about these companies that are basically portfolios of real assets a lot of the time, so they invest in land buildings, that kind of stuff. If you're investing because you believe that the management has a better understanding of the real estate market and a better capability to rent out a property than you would, then you also need to trust that management is going to act in your best interest and continue to make responsible decisions with your capital. And I think that that's that's harder the more concentrated a portfolio is. There's sort of a natural limit to the geographic area in which a company can have expertise, in my opinion. So if you're talking about real Mm -hmm. estate, you know, if there's a REIT just hypothetically that's invested in rental properties in coastal North Carolina, if they're successful at that, management may be tempted to expand to the Raleigh-Durham area, which might be an entirely different market. And I think that in any business, 
asset growth is a temptation for management. You start getting successful, then you're like, well, we'll do some deals and we'll be just as successful in another domain. And so I think that's a major risk. To me, there are two things. One is trusting management that they really have some level of expertise and are effective operators. And then the second is watching out for mission creep, which I think is something that does crop up with a lot of these investment vehicles and certainly something that Alacran seems to be pointing to in this particular case. So what do you think are the shortcomings, Daniel? First, a shout out to the research triangle. Big, big love to the Raleigh Durham area. Oh, uh, ooh, trash, <laughs> trash, <dude>, trash. <laughs> Go Hoyas. Lo- we're coming for you. I love, love building cycle, but we're coming love, for you. I love North Carolina. So, yeah, I think you nailed it in terms of management. I, I didn't think of your second point, which is just this doesn't really scale in the same way. If I'm building widgets and I build more, like if I get really good at building widgets and people need widgets, they probably need the same widget in North Carolina that they do in Massachusetts or that they do in New York or they do in California or wherever else. And so I can grow, whereas management expertise is less of an obvious moat. And so if, you know, really good at managing mobile towers or whatever else, I don't know. I don't know if you have as much of an edge there. And so I think that's that's really smart. The The more apparent issue, so the first thing I sort of flagged as an issue is mixed incentives between management and shareholders or unit holders in this case. And so, yeah, in a dirty phrase in the REIT, especially the REIT, also in BDCs a little bit, I don't know about MLPs as well, is externally managed. When you have a management team that's actually reports elsewhere and they're just hired as the manager to come in, that's led to a lot of proxy battles that leads to bad experiences for for shareholders and those sorts of companies because the incentives aren't aligned. A lot of times management is incentivized to add assets at any cost, and that's really where they get a management fee based on assets instead of incentives on returns. Which goes back to the mission creep thing a little bit, maybe. It helps fuel that, for sure. And so that's a big issue. In this case, he points out, one of Alcorn's key points is that they're paying too much, and what they're doing is they're buying 80% of, they're, they're trying to grow really fast, and 80% of what they purchased in, I don't know if he's referring to just 2017 or since they've been public, is bought from private equity funds that are managed by LMRK's general partner. And so that's a bit of self-dealing. That's a bit of, it's hard to kind of separate when you you have a relationship to the person you're buying from. It's hard to make sure you're paying a good price. Uh, one side or the other may not be doing well. And so that's, I think, a big issue. And I think it's a big, that's the part of the NLP model I struggle with a lot is the whole idea of drop downs. You hear a lot about we're dropping down X asset into this, into the MLP. Yeah, what does that mean? I don't really know. What do you, or maybe it's just a sort of garbage term. And that's a theme for me that I think we'll keep coming back on is, you know, the theme of the episode being, High yield can mean high risk, so how do investors avoid getting burned? In these specially structured vehicles with this terminology, 
it's funny that it's a very simple business model in one way. Give us money, we'll, we'll invest in real estate, and then you'll get the income from the real estate. Boom. But then we have all this weird terminology, like drop downs and file special tax form. I think people tend to like feel special for having being invested in this space. But I also think there's a lot of opportunity for pitfalls there. But back to my question, what's a drop down? I think it's essentially that the parent company sells or gives an asset to the to the, to an MLP that they are partners in. The parent will get dividends that are paid out from the MLP's income, and they might be able to raise. They might earn an income also from the the purchase, as as it were. And I think the reason I looked at this MLP called Viper Energy last year. We published a pro article on it. I found it really compelling. I wanted to research it. I didn't totally. It looked very compelling, and it, it's worked. And I wish I had bought into it. I never did. I couldn't understand why it existed. I didn't understand what its purpose was. It, it was related to Diamondback Energy, which is considered one of the best energy companies. And I think it's just that it has regular access to capital, but I don't totally, I don't know. It's just, I still conceptually don't quite understand why it had to exist as a separate unit instead of being part of Diamondback Energy. Well, but I still- getting burned. Well, but in play, it, I mean, this is one of those decisions I wish I had made. I actually then had lunch with another Seeking Alpha contributor, and he sort of raised some legitimate concerns about it, and I ended up sort of just putting it aside in the too hard pile, and I missed out on a relatively nice return. What I'm, So that's how I understand the drop-down, is essentially transfer of assets in exchange for cash, and I think the idea is that the MLP... It's not as big a deal when they raise cash. I think it's expected that they're going to sell shares or units from time to time. Mm-hmm. But that gets into the other two risks, which are if your share price goes down, you're kind of stuck where you can't raise the, the cost of capital increases more obviously than if it's a company that doesn't pay a dividend or that pays a small dividend. If you're talking about just in this past week, this stock has gone from an eight and a half percent yield to something like a 10% yield. So their cost of capital has increased by that much. I think that's, that's a, where things can go wrong. Dilution obviously is implicit in that, even as you increase your overall, and they have a great, Alacran has a great table showing how their EBITDA grows over time, how their distributable, distributable cash flow grows over time how much they're covering it, but then also on a per unit basis, they're not growing nearly as much as they would seem to be growing if you look at just the raw numbers. So I think dilution is a major factor. And then Allegrant really points out, so they're, I think the core line of what Allegrant writes, after pulling in some comparables, they write, but most importantly, the comparables generally make acquisitions and capital investments that are accretive based on cost of capital. LMRK doesn't do this. LMRK has a bad business model. And overpaying for acquisitions in that sense is, if your whole thing is you have, you're going to take my capital and put it to use, if you're taking it to, you're getting some income, but you're buying vending machines or something that are really low scale as compared to what I 
what I'm offering and expecting as a return, I think that's, that's an obvious flaw. And so those are the common flaws. And I think Alacran in one term or another points out dilution, doesn't really talk about the share price spiral, but points out the mixed incentives and then the risk of overpaying and then not, not earning back your cost of capital. So what do you think about the thesis itself? Now that we've sort of talked about how the yield traps might exist and what the risk is in these sort of yielding securities that investors will often flock to, what do you think about the case? What do you think about LMRK itself? So for the case, one of the things about this article that I think is very strong is it takes a very explainer tone. The author doesn't risk overstating the case almost to a sort of laughable degree because there you could take some of the material that's here and run with it in a very sort of negative and slanted direction. And while the author has some fun, it's sort of hilarious to me. This management has been entrusted to deliver a certain return on capital to investors. The cap table is there. We calculate a weighted average cost of capital across the debt preferred and lower tiers of the capital structure. And the company is just not delivering on that basic obligation to shareholders. And on top of that, it's doing deals that make the situation worse. And it's doing those deals with related parties. In in the hands of a less even-handed analyst, mm-hmm. the discussion would go towards First of all, would probably call management out by name, would do some digging into LinkedIn profiles and other things and find additional sort of scraps that might look bad on the surface in terms of the types of relationships that the related parties have. And so I think it was, I won't say to the credit, because if those things are out there, then investors need to know about it. But interesting to me that Alacran really makes sort of takes tiny little tiny little stabs at each side of the story and mm-hmm. it it I think it's almost a more compelling case than some of the short cases we get because it's just you have this box you put money in you're supposed to get 8% back but management on the inside is getting 7% back. So how are you ever going to get your 8% back? Those are hypothetical numbers. But that's basically what he's saying. And then on top of that, he's saying the deals that are going on inside the box are with, it's Daniel, if you made a, if you created, you know, a lemonade stand and asked me to invest $100 in it. And you said, look, you're going to get $5 back a year on my lemonade earnings. And then you turn around and you take half of that money and you buy a lemonade stand, but then you take the other half and you buy a really bad car and start driving people around with a lift and the car stinks and gets terrible gas mileage and you, you roll, you earn a penny percent a year return on that, then I'm not going to be happy when the year comes around, I come for my 5%. You've gotten 5% 
on the $50, that's $250, and you've gotten 1% on the other $50, that's $0.50. Cents. So I, you gave me three when I wanted five. That's the basic thesis here. And on top of that, you bought that car from your brother. <laughs> I'm going to be mad. But I can and make those I'm economics work, Mike. You're not trusting, trust management here. And then when you go to the market and you go to, you know, you go to my dad and you say, I've got this great business, then my dad's going to see what you did with my money and is going to say, no, if I want a 5% yield and you're only giving $3 a year, then the value I'm going to pay for that is much less, $60, 40% lower. That's the basic. And, and I think what's cool about Alacran's case here is that you can see that through all of this MLP, tax structure, all the difficulties, the drop-downs, and all the other things, I can see that box that Alacran's created. And so I think the walkthrough style and the explainer style really is effective in this case where we just need to get down to this question of what's the expected yield and what's most likely to happen. So I think that's the strength of the piece here. Well, and I think it's interesting. Last week we talked about a research report. This week, this is obviously an argument one. There are things he he alludes to comparables, and there's there's a, a little bit of sort of I, I believe him, but there's a little bit of take my word for it. Here's what the comparables trade for. Here's what we think it's worth. Whatever, but yeah, I, I agree with you. I think it's a measured. The math is there, and that's where you really, if the math is there and you have a reason to suspect that people are buying into the math despite that, which is what happens with companies with high yields, yeah. I think, you know, the I forget what the theorem is, but the fundamental argument of valuation is that risk is commensurate to reward, and so when you have a high yield, that's commensurate to the fact that the asset is viewed as riskier in the markets. And I think people, and I certainly forget this, I have some yield pig aspects in my portfolio that I'm not proud of, but people forget that. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you, Mike. I'm I'm sorry about buying that car, by the way. I really... (laughs) That Uber stinks. Getting three stars every time. Three stars. Dude, clean it up. <laughs> it's, it's, a, on the floor. it's a real lemon. I should have just stuck to the actual Ten lemon. miles per gallon freeway. <laughs> just like, what? This is supposed to be a lemonade stand. And here you are. Okay, so I want to get back to the theme of the episode because I think that hits on it, your observations here. There's all these things that are supposed to make these MLPs and these REITs attractive, the triple net lease, the obligations of renters to finance a lot of the ongoing expenses related to the property. All of those things are supposed to assure investors that the yield is safe. And maybe they often do. You know, the inflation protections, the step-ups in the rents, and all of those things that are put in place to make sure that the cash flows keep coming. But all of that becomes irrelevant if management is paying too much 
for the properties and is paying right. too much to generate the cash flows. And so that's the theme of the episode is kind of how to how to avoid getting burned on a yield trap. And I think that's one thing that investors probably ought to keep in mind is the cash flows can be safe. The cash flows can be effectively risk-free. But if you overpay for those cash flows, then you're going to wind up in this kind of unattractive situation. And the way that these things are structured, where additional activities to do better next time, if you do a bad deal, then the market's going to punish you for that. It's going to be harder to finance your next deal. And so right, that's, that's where the, the risk is, is. Even if the cash flows are protected, if the management's not making effective asset allocation decisions, the market's going to notice really fast. And then we talk, you know, we t- we've kept the word bag holder off the podcast for the most part, but that's this is a case where if you're a limited partner in a massive limited partnership where management's not making effective decisions, then you're going to be holding the bag for that. The market's going to notice and your stake in the business is going to be punished. So that's something to keep in mind. To wrap this up, the income investing crowd tends to focus on the security of the cash flows coming in and almost prides itself on ignoring price of the investment the present value of the investment. And this, this highlights a downside of, of that focus. If you're just looking at the security of the cash flows coming back to you, and you're not looking at what the market is telling you in terms of the risk level to those cash flows, then you may be missing some really important signals. And so how do investors avoid getting burned? I think it's like you said, Daniel, high yield can mean high risk. Maybe it answers its own question. There's no free high yield out there. Right. So I want to ask you about one thing that I thought was interesting in the article, which is Alacran says that the dividend should be cut and that the cash flows are not supporting the div- dividend. What can happen if, if there's a dividend cut? Is that necessarily a bad thing for investors, especially if the yield is already really high? Maybe that's okay. What do you think? Yeah, it's a great question because I was going to ask the same of you from the perspective of the short and whether this is a good short despite everything else we've said because the author even admits, I think he mentioned it in the article, but if the author doesn't mention the article, they mention it somewhere in the comments. I think they could cover, if they cut their dividend 20, 30, 40% or whatever, that would be fine. Their distribution, it's an MLP, so it's officially distribution. I think there's a lot of resistance. Again, that's where there's a little bit of this. These companies are a little bit more interesting. It's similar to what we've talked about with biotech in the past. And there are a few others. Companies who have to go to the market to raise capital. Mm-hmm. They have to they have to tell the story a little bit more than companies that are cash flow positive, that don't necessarily look to acquire or whatever else. And your audience are is income investors who want a steady income. And it's hard sometimes to admit to just even say we're going to cut because we need to save that raises questions that makes people think another cuts coming that a lot of times management will defend their distribution or their dividend for quarters on end. And when they do finally cut, it's somewhat catastrophic. And so that is the, 
bind that these sorts of management teams put themselves into with this model. But in practice, I think cutting the distribution here would make sense in the sense of it would, as the author says, you can start to pay down more debt. You can start to at least maintain the going concern of the business. But I think it would also have to require changing the model quite a bit. You would have to kind of give up on, I guess it's not absolutely tied, but I would probably give up on acquisitions too, or try to make sure that I'm acquiring assets for a reasonable price. Ubers, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Right, so, oh no, they have to, well, that's my sort of reaction here. It's like, oh no, they have to change the business model. If we accept that the business model hasn't been working, then I don't, it may be an easier pivot than you might think for shareholders to say, hey, management, stop doing related part, party deals at really attractive multiples for the seller and start executing. But to the, it's worth also putting in context. This is a, a company that has been on the market since late 2014. Oh, okay. it, yeah. it, is, it was at all-time highs a few weeks at the beginning of the year. So I think it got up got up to 18.75. It's trading at 14.7 as we speak. And so there hasn't been, it hasn't had a lot of negative feedback around it. If you just uh-huh. uh I'm just pulling up um the most recent dividend announcement news story that we shared on Seeking Alpha and all the comments are either concern over this article and whether it dropped the share price and does that mean there's an opportunity for longs or like if anything, expectation the dividend would go higher. And so it's a company that hasn't had much of a negative feedback loop. And that's, that's also not to get overly macro, but the 10 year treasury crossed 3% this week. Like we're starting to get into that range where, there's this more abstract argument that people are going to switch to risk more riskless assets instead of chasing yield, but also cost of cost of debt was going to go up and landmark has quite a bit of debt and quite a bit of preferred stock. So that's like your operating room is going to be restricted. And so this is maybe a timely article in the context of where we are in the cycle and whether these high yield stories are going to churn down a little bit. Uh, yeah, I think that's a really interesting. We've we've been sort of looking for this trade to unwind because it seems so crowded for so long. For I mean, I've been suspicious of it for three or four years now, and it hasn't totally done anything. Partly just because interest rates rates have remained low, I think is a good explanation. But let's say that investors do need to be cognizant of this potential unwind of the yield chasing trade or the high yield trade. Let's go back to our theme and just address a couple different big takeaways that investors can sort of consider. How do you avoid getting burned on high yield investments? So let's switch off. You go first. 
what do you think is a big thing to look out for? Make sure you understand the model. I think don't just accept the box thesis that you rolled out earlier. Get where their cash flow is coming from. Understand where it's going. Understand what their balance sheet looks like and what their cost of capital and how will they need to raise capital and if so, what are they likely to do? I think that is probably that that would be my number one thing. What about you? What you go? The distribution or the dividend isn't the only thing. Mm-hmm. You can't extrapolate it into the future. You can't take management's word on what's going to happen to it. You need to do your homework. It's similar to your don't pretend it's a box thing, but it's also additionally, watch what the market is saying and don't ignore the market entirely. Don't mm-hmm. just focus on the, on the yield, on the income, because the market can give you a signal that maybe you need to reevaluate in terms of the price of your holdings. What else? And I think management would be the last thing I would just look at is just what is their alignment? How are they being rewarded? How are they, do they own shares in the company? Is it externally managed? Is it, I'm not sure track record in and of itself is, I think it's very easy to fool yourself on somebody's track record to convince yourself one way or the other, but just get it. Ultimately, that's this model is dependent on management doing what they say they're going to do, and on them taking your money and investing it wisely, one way or the other. And so, it, it even more than a lot of operating companies, it may be really important to get a sense of their incentives and are they in the right. So I think that would be the the last thing that I would key in on. And I have one more. And it's Go. that income vehicles tend to exhibit lower volatility than other securities. This means that where you might be shocked out of a holding that drops really fast in other contexts, the share prices in these income-generating investments tend to move more slowly, so you may find yourself by a thousand tiny cuts eventually down 30, 40, 50% on an investment. And there's the strategy of being focused on income may point you to continuing to average down. But be careful. This goes back to the market may be telling you something. Right. Uh, the the low volatility I think can cause some investors to fall into the psychological bias of a slowly progressing worsening situation is harder to notice and adapt to than a rapid change in circumstances. So be watch out for low volatility. It can be a benefit, but it can also be a curse. And don't get don't get progressively locked into something just because it's not moving down quickly. Right. None of this is individual investment advice, but I do think that we should share some perspectives just in our general assessment from our seat as people who see a lot of dividend and income focused investor behavior. So, all right. Um, yeah, I think that's a good, we've got our four 
commandments for dealing with yield traps and Alacran has stung landmark units with a impressive first article and it'll be interesting to see where it plays out from there alright I think we, we can go yeah have a good one Daniel take care alright you too Mike bye Mike bye thanks for listening to Seeking Alphas Behind the Idea please subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or iTunes Stitcher or SoundCloud thank you to the people who have rated us so far on iTunes if you have the time to rate or review the podcast there, it will help us make this better for you in the future. You can also email me or Mike at Daniel at SeekingAlpha.com or mtaylor at SeekingAlpha.com or tweet us at at DanielSeekingA or at mbrookstaylor with feedback, suggestions, or requests for future episodes. This has been a Seeking Alpha production. Thanks for listening and see you next time on Behind the Idea.